on this episode of Suspect Zero, the case of the Times Square Ripper. Due to some graphic content, listener discretion is advised. Sometimes the quests we set out to achieve take us on a journey we never expected. A chance encounter can potentially change the course of our lives and set us in a new direction where we are utilized and needed. Today's guests illustrate just how the course of a person's life can take on new meaning. Not only are they doing humanitarian work, but they were recently featured in the Netflix documentary, The Times Square Killer, where convicted serial killer Richard Cottingham's known crimes are uncovered. Cottingham has admitted to 11 murders, but he has stated that he has committed well over 85 and under 100 that have yet to be solved. Cottingham's known murders were committed in New York and New Jersey between 1967 and 1980. He was nicknamed the Torso Killer and the Times Square Torso Ripper after his dismemberment and decapitation of two victims in the Travel Inn Hotel located in Times Square on December 2, 1979. Cottingham fled the scene with the severed heads and hands, which were never recovered. He was eventually apprehended on May 22, 1980, in a New Jersey motel in the act of torturing a teenage sex worker who he had lured and driven into the location from New York City. Cottingham had never expected to one day meet the fierce, determined, and justice-seeking biological daughter of one of these victims. Jennifer Weiss grew up as an adopted child who would one day seek out her estranged mother. She never expected to be met with the facts surrounding what happened. Jen's birth mother, Dita Godarzi, a 22-year-old immigrant and sex worker, was one of the victims found in the Travel Inn on that fateful December day. As one chance encounter meets another in this ironic twist of fate, Peter Vronsky, a true crime historian and best-selling author, shared an elevator with the murderer who was exiting the severed heads and hands of his victims. Peter had no idea at the time that this encounter would eventually write the script for his upcoming journey with serial killers. Both Jen and Peter are here today to discuss the incredible work they have done in order to seek justice, not only for Cottingham's victims, but for the families whose lives have been shattered by this deviant serial killer. Welcome to Suspect Zero, where we not only discuss unsolved cold cases, but serial killers whose crimes are lesser known or virtually unknown. I'm Dawn Washburn, and joining me is my co-host, Dr. Michael Arntfield, along with our special guests, Jennifer Weiss and Peter Vronsky. Welcome, everyone. We're so excited to have you here today. Hey, Don. What's up, Michael? Hey. <laughs> We're waiting for Peter. So just to let the audience know, we had a, a, a call from the prison. <laughs> um, Richard Cottingham called Peter this morning, which we did get a little bit of video on that. We didn't hear Cottingham, but we could hear uh, we could hear Peter <laughs> speaking to him. Um, so that's what we encountered this morning. And now we are just waiting for Peter to rejoin us. So we can we can carry on um, with with our discussion. Michael, hello. <laughs> hey Don. Hey Jen. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks guys. It's uh, I mean this is uh, the Cottingham case fits so squarely within what we're trying to do in this podcast or with this podcast in terms of I mean here's someone who's not a household name, maybe he is now after the Netflix series, but uh, I mean very specific mo uh prolific whether or not you know it's 85 plus we may never know but um i mean someone who we can learn a lot from and uh jen i applaud uh i i understand the 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 sort of elliptical connection to him but beyond that i mean you're not looking to just stake that claim and and and, and get some publicity you're doing meaningful work so I mean, I think everybody recognizes that. I hope. I've been 
misconstrued a bunch of times by these vultures who just want to print a story about an old killer. <laughs> and I actually, I want to make the list of names of women whose cases were never closed. So maybe let's start there. What do you, I, so this topic comes up uh, in a book I've got coming out in a couple months on cold cases, but there's a long list of serial killers who make um, bold claims about their body count. And Samuel Little recently deceased, currently the most, or confirmed to be the most prolific serial killer in American history, had a, around 100 victims he claimed, and, and, and most have been corroborated, independently corroborated by the FBI and various law enforcement agencies. Cottingham, you know, Henry Lee Lucas and some other serial killers have, have claimed hundreds and uh, basically strung the cops along. How many, you've done considerable research, how many do you realistically think Cottingham is good for? I believe that his numbers of 80 to 100 are pretty accurate, if not, if not more, because he was bored. He was working in New York City. Uh, the opportunities were always available to him. And he said to me, he could spend a weekend with two girls and then on his way home, see a runaway at the train station and take that opportunity to, to hang out with the runaway. Like, back then there was girls running away, women selling themselves on the streets. And then he had general interest to, to try to be such a normal person that he'd have actual relationships where nobody got hurt for months and months. So he was constantly surrounding himself with women from all different areas and feeding his sexual desires and his just his loneliness. He had a wife. He was constantly looking for trouble. We see similar um, behavior with, I mean, a number of killers. Uh, Dennis Rader comes to mind. I mean, what what we really try to stress for people to understand is a superficially, quote unquote, normal or let's say functional and social um, ability to maintain relationships belies the fact often that uh, sex for these people or intimacy is not what it is for everybody else. So um, you really, when you mention loneliness and boredom, that's critical because while outwardly, you know, you're, you're someone who can um, have functional relationships, that's all a facade. I mean, uh, to, to the sadist, which he clearly is, um, true intimacy and, and, and fantasy uh, has nothing to do with what you or I would deem to be healthy sexual functioning. It has to do with terrorizing people, torturing people, um, terrifying uh, entire communities uh, and, and, and the power wrought from that. So uh, when you mentioned, yeah, he can, he can have a sort of a, uh, a sex holiday, consensual uh, weekend away with one or more women and then, but that won't satiate him. It's that runaway at the subway station uh, where at, at this point, that's the, the coital moment. That's why I think saying he killed up to 80 to 100 women is obviously realistic when 
Yeah. When you think about his days as a free man. And so it's hard for people to comprehend. And they, uh, departments say, is this number real and true? We don't know. It's possible. It's more than possible when every day you're looking for trouble. You know, every day you're not looking to be a good citizen, which is the normal minded people are are questioning if this is a real number. It's like, you don't understand the life of someone who's victimizing people on a daily basis. He's proud of this because he had that interview with Nadia Fazani, I believe. And he had said in that interview that nobody believes that the perfect crime could be committed. However, I've committed 85 of them. (laughs) And he, he talks to me about his perfect crimes and he said, Jennifer, what would, what would in your eyes be a perfect crime? What does that mean to you? And I said, Richard, I have no clue what a perfect crime would be, but I can only imagine that perfect in your eyes would mean maybe you didn't, you might've not had anything to do with the actual deed. And he said, some of them. And he gave me a couple examples where he had two women in the same room and threatened them or just one of them and said, if you don't kill her, I'm going to kill you. So this leaves that woman to have to do something she would normally never do. But because she's scared for her own life, she's going to carry out some kind of victimization to this other woman, this other person. Both of them end up dying in the long run, but he's watching as someone else is carrying out his dirty deeds. And that to him is a perf- one of the perfect murders. He's super, I'm- super proud of what he did. Like, he's and super he even, proud of all these all situations. everything. And he and he even said, um, I think she had asked him a question about, you know, would you kill me? And he said, no, I like you. Meanwhile, she's the perfect kit. She fits the entire bill for what he would normally take and kill. <laughs> so well, he said the same thing to me. I liked yeah. your mom. Oh, yeah. You liked her so much. You took her right. head off. Right. I have that on video. Me saying that to him at the right. prosecutor's office. It's like you kill your friends. That's what you're doing. Then. Right. And the, the Times Square, you know, the documentary, although it was it was good, but I honestly wish that I heard you so much more with what you had been in that in, in, doing the well, work you do with him. Burlinger's you know? not allowed to touch that story. Why? Because I'm under a contract with Peter to tell my life story. Oh, okay. So Joe ended his where he could end his. And right. I'm so grateful because he legitimized my whole background story. He did. He did. A lot of people still don't believe this happened to my biological mother and that I'm just a crazy girl. They don't, they don't look into the facts. And once they do, they come running back saying, I'm sorry. I, I read this. I saw this. I did this. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not just a regular crazy girl off the street. Who's interested in killers. My mother was decapitated and I had to forgive the man for times and crime details. So that you could get answers, not because yeah, you they, believed he was your father. Let's put that out there. No, <laughs> because I, you you said that was something that kept coming up with other journalists and whatnot. But I, I knew that to be true before we even entered into this. Yeah, you know, because you guys were working on the New Jersey Girl Murders site as well. 
right? So that's how I came across this. Um, I didn't even know you guys were, ha you had a Netflix special coming out. I, I was researching the, um, the Jeanette De Palma case with my, with my students. And when I saw the New Jersey girl, I'm like, this is genius. And you can even see patterns within the MO with a lot of them. And you, you almost be, even though they didn't actually admit they did it, you can, can I connect stop you for them. A second. Was Jeanette De Palma's murder speculated to be done by someone who was using occult symbolism? Yes. Okay. Because yes. that was the only thing that seemed a little bit off in my eyes to link Richard, but it's not too far off when you see his track record and see he wants to do things differently every time. Right. And Michael so, and I did a podcast. We did a podcast episode on Jeanette De Palma. And I had expressed to Michael that I thought Cottingham would fit this. And then I got a call from Ed Salzano, who's the, the investigator who friended someone in the family. And but he's also he does the Justice for Jeanette website. Um, and he's he's faced with so much opposition because of these family members about it. And so Why? I well, don't they want closure. He literally, as soon as we aired that episode, the comment, he, he reached out to me immediately. He's like, you guys are not on the right track about this. And I said, well, I said, what's well, the right track? We're well, the only he said, on the track. <laughs> he said, read the book. So he sent me the book. I read the book and he said, and then he came back to me. He said, well, now what do you think? I said, I still think Richard Cottingham did it. And he said, well, let me give you more facts. So he started feeding me more facts on the case that he knew relative to the family and things that were going on within the interworkings of that. And he's convinced that it's someone more intimate that she knew. But she's on the, the New Jersey Girl Murders Web as, as well as a student who actually went to Hackensack High School. Right now, because the case was never closed, we're going to speculate. Right. that it was Richard, exactly. and we're going to add him to the list of possibles because yeah it's possible right. and and the reason why it's possible is because he did go overboard when trying to do things differently um and if if he there was i bet i bet like seven serial killers at the same time there was as richard was free so it's in it's jersey hard, nonetheless in jersey hard to, to say you yeah. know but the occult symbolism sticks out as something different. So Richard would intentionally do something like that to, to have people not think it was him right. and not doing the same thing every time. So to commit the perfect crime <laughs> that he Well, and this is, this is uh, a, a trait commonly seen among offenders with disorganized characteristics in that, um, I mean, someone like Richard Chase, the vampire killer in Sacramento immediately comes to mind where, I mean, he, he, he got sloppy and his crimes were closely connected in, in time and space. But uh, I mean, part of Cottingham's, let's call it success, uh, is the fact that while many disorganized offenders, you know, make mistakes, don't uh, engage in, in pre-planning or stalking or surveillance and act randomly, it's the randomness of those crimes that allows them to not be connected. I mean, yeah, if, if, if they're purely opportunistic, uh, situational, uh, split-second decisions about, uh, you know, whether it be by um, by blitz or ruse or some other method of acquiring a victim, um, it's 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 the randomness that was critical in his success. Now, would he have been able to operate today like that? No. Uh, before he was caught probably not but as you mentioned jen i mean this is before there were 10 million cameras everywhere 
uh, before DNA and uh, at a time when uh, every city was a stocked pond of vulnerable victims. And someone like him, yeah, um, would be drawn to these centers and, and could act with impunity. So I, I, I'm with you that uh, 80 to 100 is probably on the lower end. I believe so, because he was taking his victims across state lines all the time. And this was a game to him, a game he played every day, all throughout the day, you know? Mm -hmm. It's it's been such a crazy thing to watch the the progression of because I had uh, I sent him a letter. I told you this early on that I had sent him a letter and asked him to join the show. And it wasn't really for sensationalism because Michael and I are both educators. Michael is a professor um, at Western University and I teach high school. So we utilize this. When we started this podcast, it wasn't about becoming famous. <laughs> it was about relinquishing these cold cases so that people could see. And if anyone knew anything, just bring, shed more light to the lesser known serial, yeah. the, you know, the lesser known serial killers and the lesser known cold cases that people haven't heard of. So that was, that's been our mission from the beginning. So when we approach the podcast, it's you, you could tell that we're teachers in how we even execute the podcast <laughs> sometimes. Um, so when I asked you to be on it, I knew immediately just by the, the, even your live Facebook feeds that you, that you um that I you care. you do and and i could even sense that you're like okay you know you guys didn't believe me before but now that this netflix special's out maybe now you'll believe me <laughs> you i know, just you feel like i went into this doing something for dita gudarzi and i didn't realize how compelled i would feel to help her friends because no one's speaking for them and most of the family members have died so when you deal with cold cases, it's victims' families who push for justice and call the different departments. Did you find anything? Can you check this lead? I think it's this guy. No one else generates any interest on these old cases. So I was really excited to be part of this show. That's absolutely true. And uh, I talk about that in the book as, as well, in that um, often we'll see the vector of a cold case change entirely as those family members start to die off. So what will happen is um, either no one takes up the mantle uh, or, or someone sort of just fills in as the, as the contact with police uh, or actually in some cases can be hostile with police. And that whole dynamic then between the assigned investigator and the family changes either way if there's a change in the continuity of who the who the family contact is and their push for um, keeping the case alive, that is the most deterministic change in the life of an investigation. And uh, you'll see cases either come alive or or disappear into the black hole completely, depending on who the family contact is for detectives. True crime genre is bittersweet because. Yeah, it's it shouldn't be interesting. It shouldn't be entertaining. But now that we have all these different platforms and people generating activity on all these different cases, it's it's really, really great for cold case closures that we have the community talking about uh, all these cases. I, I used to hate this work because it's a small circle of people that are interested in in getting things done as far as closing cold cases and it's yucky words it's not great content it's not something 
that I ever thought I'd be doing, but I just feel as though if I'm going to be here helping out my mom, I'm going to help her friends. And all her friends are the up to a hundred women and missing and murdered children and women and young ladies. You also had something where you were talking about it and I could sense like, cause I watched the pod, I watched some podcast interviews you were in and I could sense the story just co- like going over. And I kept thinking to myself, I said, she has to keep telling this story over and over as many times as you could possibly tell it. And, and I think you're, if your mother could be here today, I believe truly that she would already have found justice in the fact that you're just doing this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so I find that that's something that you need to keep doing. You I, know? I know my ways are unconventional and I have dark humor and I'm <laughs> a strange girl. I, I have killer jokes that I had to get permission from a killer to use in my daily life. I said, hey, Richie, can I make jokes about you? He said, yes. It was like, I felt I needed his permission. So I do have a strange way of of shedding light on my mother's case and the cases of the other girls. And I hope that after people do their own research, they can come to know, wow, she's she's speaking to an audience and she's trying to get shit done. You are. <laughs> and it and it definitely it definitely comes through. I wish I want I wish Peter were here right now, but I'm also kind of happy that we had this time with you because a lot of times Peter's your Peter speaks. And and I I watched some of the things and I said, I really want to hear Jen speak because you have a lot of conversations that you had with him and you you're you're intimate with him. He trusts you. Even in the email that I sent, he wrote me back and he said, please. I would be more than willing to come on the show, talk to my lawyer. Um, and I know his lawyer, my family is friends with his lawyer. So I knew that I'd be able to get in on that and that arena. But I also in the email, he said, please contact Jen Weiss. And I'm thinking, who's Jen Weiss? I don't know. How am I supposed to contact? He didn't tell me how to contact her. So, and it was a probably months later, I was looking at the New Jersey girl murders website and I was looking at Peter's work and suddenly I saw your name like where do I know this name it keeps coming up and then I linked the two together and I said that's who he wanted me to ask if it was okay so he's gotten very intimate with you to the point of where he sees you as a family member you know truly that you would be a spokesperson even for him so I really wanted to capture what your conversations were and you even said in another podcast that can you tell the story about Halloween I, I did I did tell him on a visit, I surprised him on Halloween and I said, tell us a spooky story, Richie, about December 2nd, 1979. And I brought my oldest daughter. He did. He was so uh, shocked that I was so um, nonchalant about bringing up Dita's death in front of my oldest daughter he he was very shy and um it was unexpected that i would show up there and say tell us a spooky story because it's halloween richie and you owe it to me he was like i'm not gonna tell the story about her grandmother and then my daughter chimes in oh come on we want to hear about the burgers and the two and all and, and you know <laughs> he was starting to feel comfortable enough because we are real people. I'm not there as an officer, uh, tell us this. And I'm not, I wanna make things lighthearted. 
he gets offended, but then it softens him up enough to use that language with me. Right. Oh. But if you came at him like that, you would sound like an investigator and then he would be shut down to you. People don't no, understand no, that. I, People. No, I, yeah, I get I that. Do talk to him like that. Yeah, and I, I get that. That's why I get away with it is because I am lighthearted and I am funny and he does trust me. And I do give him a little punch on the shoulder and yeah. say, come on, Richie, you know that, you know, I love you, Richie. Tell us what happened on December 2nd. So right. if people um, actually heard our conversations and heard me expressing my, my so-called love to him, that's a way to soften him up. Right. After I insult him, I tell him I love him. <laughs> he's, he's got mixed feelings. So he, he's never been manipulated so badly right. by an individual more than me. Right. He's my prisoner now. And that's what I say. So I oh. said, tell us a story about Halloween. And at first he didn't want to. And then he started to give us the watered down version of the Times Square killing at the Travel Inn. And my oldest daughter got to hear that. <laughs> This could be pure manipulation, but he did say that he would be willing to help the families, um, help them figure out who did what, where they were. He said that he would do that, but he said, I don't really owe hum humanity anything. I Correct. really, I don't owe them anything. Correct. But if, if it was a, someone I knew and they wanted some information, I'd be more than willing to give it to them. <laughs> yeah. So... I don't know. I always wonder why, if they're in jail so long, Michael probably has answers, but they're in jail. You're in there forever. Why can't you just say it now? Well, and many do. So these approaches, and, and we see in the U.S., prisoners are more likely to do this um, because they can be incentivized in all kinds of ways that um, just the bureaucratic apparatus of the Canadian penitentiary system won't allow you know, wardens and and guards, I, I would suggest, have greater discretion in terms of the creature comforts and, and thing and inducements that they can offer. Um, and Sam Little's a great example of that. Like he's sort of on on his way to basically death, and is asked the right questions by the right Texas Ranger, um, and just sort of, I think it's, it's something as as rudimentary as he just wanted a change and here's someone to talk to every day and a different room to be in then what have you been doing for years and years when he was already incarcerated for other murders so um and unlike some other killers who exploit that sort of um relationship uh his stories turned out to be true so i see a huge opportunity here with cottingham if he's forthcoming like this um to clear some of these to link him to other cases i mean in sam little's situation all he had was i mean very general descriptions of locations and approximations in terms of month and year and then sketches that he made because he had a vivid photographic memory because again think of the, the the fantasy value of the of these murders they, they they cruise on the memories of these murders for some time so he had i mean a uh photographic memory of how each of his victims looked and, and some decent artistic skills so he sketched them and the sketches are publicly available now, and they're trying to match these sketches to, to missing persons. But in many cases, they'll have never been reported missing. They're what we call the missing missing because nobody noticed. They're on the margins and nobody notices them. They're, they have no conventional job to not show up to. They have no real friends or family, so they never get reported. So we may never find them. But, uh, I mean, here's an opportunity with Cottingham to replicate what happened with Sam Little. And I think uh, between the four of us, that can be done. But this is my problem with even how 
how it played out with Sam, how it's playing out with Richard. I hope to eventually change a law so that when you're incarcerated, you're specifically assigned a mental health professional to help you deal with your times and crimes so that you're not sitting watching TV every day. You need to deal with what you did. And then it won't be 40 year gaps in case closures. And we won't have someone who's on the verge of dementia, who's trying to sketch out their victims. It's like, I have several cases, several counties with their files, with their photos. Why did it take a woman from the street uh, with no background in criminology to, to intertwine into this realm to get things done? So I'd really like it if restorative justice could be utilized and um, implemented in these criminals' uh, last days of incarceration so that they're not just sitting around watching TV. Like, they need to help out. They need to, to close these cases. And I just feel like they don't get the attention that they need when it comes to dealing with their times and crimes. They really need to sit and, and they need to be able to sit with a map and a, and a realistic timeline of their time as a free individual and say, you know what, in 1971, I remember at my daughter's birthday, I remember after that birthday, I had a long weekend in Long Island where I did this. Like, you're only given 15 minutes on a on a phone call as a visitor. You're only given an hour in a contact visit as a civilian going to visit. And as a police officer, you might not even get the chance to sit with some of these criminals because they don't want to. It's just it's the way that they're doing things is not helpful when it comes to closed case, close case closure, closures. Agreed. The, 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 the main obstacle then is, though, um, often it takes, uh, I mean, there's a, a sort of a marination period where they need to be in for a while in order to, I mean, they're not, as soon as they get in, going to be necessarily be receptive to, uh, obviously, treatment, to talking, to assisting. I mean, when you're dealing with... Not their choice anymore once you're incarcerated. You're, you're now under our care. You have a mental health professional from 9 to 12 every day. Bearing in mind, though, psychopathy and sadism essentially as psychological defects rather than specific. I mean, they are tabled or sadism is at least I mean, they're, they're, they're paraphilias. They're not necessarily treatable um, psychological disorders, per se. So how we get through to these people um, is I mean Sam Little. We still don't necessarily know what his sort of motivational makeup was, but I mean Cottingham is is I mean, and, and I want to seg into what you know about his background because I mean you you've studied him more or, or talked with him more probably than anybody. Um, but when you're dealing with uh, I mean extreme sadists who have predilections and fantasies that involve uh, you know torture and terror and 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 murder and mutilation. Um, I mean, that, that is not someone who is going to be receptive to, to talk therapy. So what, and I'm asking from a genuine, uh, out of a genuine intellectual curiosity here and also for our listeners, what do you know about, like, give me, what is Richard Cottingham at 14 look like? What, what have you learned? I believe at 14, 
he's unsupervised. His father is drinking after work and on weekends is not around. His mother has three siblings of his to care for, three daughters. So he's kind of left to view the world as he wants and to do what he wants in the world. He has six uncles in the Bronx who also don't have a father figure really around. And so you got a lot of male influence that's trying to cheat people, trying to get the best deal on something. Probably, uh, I don't know how any of these men were treating the women in their lives or talking about women in general, but it couldn't have been good seeing how Richard treated women and children in his lifetime. But 14 to 16, he gets a job at a local pharmacy. He's delivering prescriptions to older women who are then inviting him into their homes to brush their hair, to sit and have coffee with them. And Richard's now in that puberty um, bracket where he's learning about his own body and the bodies of these strange older women who he's bringing prescription medicine to. So I am not sure exactly, I cannot pinpoint when his first kill was, but I speculate he was a teenager. And um, during this time, you could find magazines online at the shopping center that depicted women being tortured by men in uniforms. The women might have had a smile on their face, might not have, didn't know if they liked it or not, but looks really, that looks like something I could definitely do. I could definitely tie up a girl on my free time and see her boobs then. And if you're seeing these things and you don't have supervision or anyone really a good influence to say, Richard, that's smut. Don't touch those. They're disgusting. You don't do that to girls. No one's telling him it's wrong. I mean, in this is what I'm speculating. So he then carries out his own fantasies, which are sadistic, on women and children. And I, I just, I can't really, I can't really say where he got it from, but I know that he wasn't supervised. Yeah, and that's common among uh, a, a number of, of, of serial killers. I mean, when we look at formative years, um, detachment from a solid parental figure or uh, isolation, social isolation, often stemming from moving a lot uh, or from, again, parental abandonment, uh, particularly um, when there's numerous other siblings involved. For whatever reason, there's no firm studies on this, but um, families with multiple children and where the male has a low birth order, in other words, he's, he's much younger often than female siblings, uh, is when we see extreme sadism when they eventually begin offending. And I'm not sure why, um, but obviously a lot of time to retreat into bizarre fantasies and uh, there being no sort of voice of reason or, 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 or sort of governor on those fantasies, ideally a, a strong male role model. Uh, that that is very common. He and did have a head injury at four years old. He ran into oncoming traffic 
while he was on foot. So he suffers a head injury at four. Mom has three young daughters that she's breastfeeding and he's watching them get the breast and he's not getting anything. And his dad's not around. So I'm not sure if the head injury plays a big part in how he turns out, but. There's some thought that congenital brain defects may factor in, maybe not necessarily deterministic, but certainly um, a, a correlative effect or, or contribute to, again, misinterpreting visual stimuli and then developing bizarre fixations. But you, raise a, you raised a, a, a point that I want to come back to, which is uh, we talk about, again, the 70s and 80s as being 60s, 70s and 80s as sort of being um, a time when serial killers had free reign. It wasn't that long ago that you, you mentioned these smut magazines that these detect, they call them detective magazines. I mean, so illustrated, um, I mean, pornography for sadists basically that were available, soft pornography, but pornography nonetheless for, for sadists and sexual deviants available at conventional variety stores, grocers, and, and, and then and when he grew, when he grew up into be a young man, he was reading books about secret killers, detectives who were killing, like, so that's what was his interest from a young age. And yeah, that was peddled. I mean, as under the pretext of being a, you know, a, that was basically true crime before the term true crime was coined, but it was published in such a way that, uh, I mean, it's, it was the modern version of Penny Dreadfuls from the 19th century, where the focus was on lurid imagery. Uh, and unlike Penny Dreadfuls that ostensibly reported on, on actual crimes, these were fictional stories about sexual torture, uh, yeah, serial killers, serial rapists, often people in authority, um, you know, police officers, teachers, etc., that allowed uh, the disordered mind to really cling to these ideas and, and to, to seek out, quite frankly, lines of work. And then uh, he gets the job in New York City, Times Square, where all the billboards have the right. names and titles of just very... Uh, the titles to some of the shows and the peep shows and how they would title their work was not 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 pretty not nice it was all sexual deviant stuff and again for our listeners uh, who maybe don't remember or weren't around Times Square in that era was not like it is now this is like the taxi driver joker era of uh Times Square where it's smut um, titles exactly well, and, and it's yeah, it, this and you is stay focused on work when women are throwing themselves at your feet saying, I'll do whatever you want for 200 bucks. Yeah, you're going to take a long lunch break. Right. Yeah, you're going to show up late. Yeah, you're going to leave early. And he's the type of guy who's going to just take advantage of, of every minute he can to feed his sexual sadism. Because that's where he's in. That's where his interests. His interests aren't going home and doing his job. He likes to be sidetracked into the dark world. It was like the and devil's playground. <laughs> it really, it really was. And that's why I see, that's why we see the versatility, I think, in, in MO is that uh, these aren't, he's not sophisticated enough. He's a largely disorganized uh, offender uh, or has disorganized characteristics, but he's not varying his MO to fool authorities or as an investigative countermeasure. He is, as you said, Jen, 
experimenting. He wants to, uh, whether in, he's responsible for Jeanette De Palma or not, or whether the, the satanic imagery in that case was sort of tea leave reading rather than a, a genuine shrine or, or, or ritual having been left. Um, that's certainly, yeah, he would dabble in that. that just and, just, and he had the books to, to map out how he wanted to leave uh, the crime scene in that particular, in De Palma's case, he, it would have been premeditated to say, let me set this up to look like such and such. They would never know, link it to me. To a, to a, a prostitute slaying in, in Times Square. Yeah, right. a, a satanic murder in New Jersey. What, what, you know, not to, to, to go off the subject, which it's not really because it's all the same guy. When it comes to the two headless women at the hotel room on December 2nd, 1979, we find again, a duo of girls, Marianne Pryor and Lorraine Kelly. Here's a double again. And, you know, even though he didn't take their heads off, he's killing in twos. So now you say you killed up to a hundred women and that you were doing this every couple of weeks. Okay, so was it one or was it two? Um, and then there was no hesitation marks with the girls who were headless. And, you know, you would need some practice to have no hesitation marks. How many beheadings? How many wrists did you cut? It's like, when you say disorganized, um, it, it might seem like, I call him a lazy killer and I call him disorganized sometimes, but he was using different weapons and different uh, hacksaws, knives, fake guns, and then taking those from each scene, from each time, throwing them off the Christopher Street piers. So it wasn't like he was carrying around the same weaponry. He, everything was always changing. This is why the Jeanette De Palma case with the New Jersey girl murder site, when we, when I started looking at it, the Jeanette De Palma case got confusing, I think, and, and the serial killer got kind of ruled out because of the hill that she was left on. And a lot of people speculate, well, she would have had to have known the person. She would have had to have gone in this particular area because this is an area that was very known for satanic rituals and bad things happening at nighttime. And so when we, when you go, because we went there, I went to go not see not necessarily it. a factor that she would have known him because- No, it's not. And that's- friends to say, you're coming with me here. Yes, yes. Have a choice. Yeah. You, all you have to do is park at the bottom of that hill. And he likes going to make out corners. He does. He does. Where yeah. he dropped off the heads and hands at a, a makeout yeah. secret overlook location. Welcome back, Peter. I just heard the last part about Jeanette Palma and, and, and of course, um, Jesse Pollack, uh, the journalist, um, has been interviewing Richard Cottingham about that case. Uh, and, and um, uh, you know, they... they he is trying to link certainly um, the possibility that that might have been one of Cottingham's um, murders. The problem with that case is it's unclear even if it's a homicide. Uh, uh, there's, there's, as far as I saw, there is no evidence um, clearly definitively conclusively that it even was a homicide um although from the things that jesse discovered in that um 
when he got, uh, did that freedom of access, freedom of information request, and he did get a file, which he very generously shared with us. Um, apparently, somebody was there with her. Um, some of her things were missing, but whether they went missing from the top of the hillside or went missing earlier, we don't know. Uh, but there, there, certainly it never was officially, uh, there was nothing for the ME to conclude that this was a homicide. So it could have been death by misadventure, you know, all sorts of things. And it is geographically, certainly in a uh, Cottingham's area, and, and there are a number of cases there in that area that um, are plausible Richard Cottingham's in, in you know, um, it's a little bit, you know, the hilltop is a little bit remote, although um, Cottingham, between us and everybody listening, did not um, definitively say that's not mine because often he does that. Um, you know, one thing we can count on with him is, is cases that are not, he knows are not his, he'll, he won't toy around with us. He'll, he'll just say, that's not mine. Don't waste your time. That's not mine. Um, if it is his case, he, he gives off all sorts of um, you know, without necessarily saying it's his case, he does give off a kind of, there's a towel um, that is very readable that this is worth asking him about later or um, pursuing it in more detail with him. But um, so certainly um, what, from what I understand from Jesse, he has not uh, kind of reneged that case or disassociated himself from it. Problem is, he doesn't remember. He doesn't know. Uh, for example, when he killed Jackie Harp in Midland Park, he had no idea he was in Midland Park. Um, he had no idea when it was. He remembered it was maybe summertime or springtime. It could have been, his memory could have been 1967 or 68 or 69 or 70, 72. He's got a five-year um, uh, kind of slippery range of when he thinks he did things. Um, he can describe the terrain, but he cannot describe the geographic nomenclature of, of, of the location. Um, most what he remembers is victims' uh, faces, their um, features, and he described to us how he's hyper vigilant and very focused after the murder at the crime scene that the one thing where he is most buzzing at is not to leave any kind of forensic evidence behind he, that how he very carefully drives his vehicle out of the site to ensure that he doesn't leave tire marks that he um always selects a point where he's going to leave the body where he can see other cars approaching um and 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 looking at some of the locations 
where the bodies are left when when we kind of ask the question why didn't he leave it um 10 yards earlier or 10 yards further down the roads when you get to the point where the body was you get these amazing vistas often where you can see down almost 300 yards down a roadway but you go another 10 yards and suddenly you lose that vista so that's one of the telltale marks that he leaves behind um uh, you know that there's kind of views long-range views from where sometimes, you meet audience. sometimes sometimes yeah yeah sometimes well we can test the, it that's you why know. the de palma case uh is plausible in my eyes because it was kind of like a makeout overlook like he likes to go to the secret makeout. Places. Yes, yeah, yeah, lovers' lanes and, and and things. So, so it's possible, but we're far away from definitively connecting that. That was um, quite a. It's quite a hill. I mean, uh, have you been there? <laughs> no, I haven't. But I uh, wish I had. Well, yeah, I made I made my husband go. <laughs> So uh, we, we went and my kids were like, I want to go. So they went and they climbed the fence. And he said, listen, there's first of all, there's no way that you're carrying a body up this hill. They're, like the, she would have had to have been there either forced or willing, but went up the hill. It, it's it's very steep. It, it really is. And, it, and it's and the surrounding area is, doesn't look like any kind of you have to get to the top of the hill. This would be where they would either perform the rituals or smoke weed or whatever they're doing. The kids would go to the top of this hill so they wouldn't be seen. And you, the car would be seen because you have to park unless you drove into the quarry. You would have to park right outside unless he went into it, because at the time, I don't think the fence was there, but it's a really eerie really eerie place to be it really um, is it's it's eerie he makes a big deal about leaving his car behind and moving too far away from his car um often the murder scene was actually inside his car um and 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 then he would just drive um the victim elsewhere and uh dispose of their body um and he didn't hide bodies he left bodies he says in places where they would be quickly found because he thought it would be undignified for his victims to have animals get at them or for them to decay and so forth. He wanted the bodies found quickly uh, for that reason, he says. So that's kind of typical of these guys. They, they have this in the same way he claims he never stabbed any of his victims uh, because that would quote violate them um you know it's kind of this this weird double standard that often uh, they have they'll, they'll admit to everything but uh, took a dime out of the old man's pocket uh, or or i had sex with her when she was dead right things things like that so um he's got this weird double standard um, but he did stab them. Um, I, th I think what he meant was he didn't do 50 stab wounds, the kind of frenetic multiple stab wounds. Um, I, I, I think they're, um, how would we describe them, a functional stab wounds. They're not expressive. They're, the purpose of the stab wound is to kill the victim. And, and, and so a number of his victims were stabbed once. It's one lethal stab wound, interestingly, in the same place um and 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 so you have to press him on that when we talk to him and and he's got this great escape mechanism that he's done to jennifer and myself a, a number of times when you when you kind of 
pin him down uh, where there's no place for him to get out of it. Like, like Rich, um, I saw the crime scene photo. We saw the photograph of the body, right? And at that point, he will say, well, if I don't remember it, it never happened. <laughs> and where do you go from there? Right. Uh, Peter, what, uh, what do you make in terms, we've been talking a bit while you were on the phone with him actually about uh, MO. So the the transport and dump, I mean, this is what the, the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime calls disposal pathway number two. And offenders who use that MO have a number of common characteristics. And one of the things that you can glean from that immediately is um, the offender is not concerned about being connected to the victim. And you can almost guarantee that in each case, this has been a, a stranger or targeted stranger. Um, and because they don't need to buy their time, they don't want to come back to the scene necessarily. They may come back to the scene, but if the body is not there, um, that, that's, it's, it's not a Gary Ridgway type situation. But I, I've said that he employed a number of um, disorganized characteristics and we're moving increasingly away from that dyadic model of organized yeah. disorganized more towards the mixed yeah. but it's I mean, definitely mixed category yeah i was gonna yeah. say this is a, a the poster child for for the value of the, of the mixed methodology because yeah. he's, <laughs> he's he's randomly sort of marauding around looking for victims there's no sort of pre-planning or stalking or surveillance no there's a, i mean obviously well, he, does, he, he does carry the duffel bag his every bag is for the solutions where he's got a bunch of different he's always he's always ready but he's yeah he's, he's ready, ready for ready anything he, he, he's got that escape plan in mind like you said where he'll uh um pick a dump site where he can have uh basically 360 degrees of of of, of uh sort of um perspective so no one can get the jump on him uh so i mean and then he's all over the place in terms of of uh murder method yeah. So, I mean, while surf, uh, I see this as almost strategically disorganized and that right. it's the sheer randomness and mm -hmm. he's always ready to go. He's always got uh, sort of, um, he's always prepared, but it's the, it's the apparent or superficial randomness of the crimes that obviously uh, served him so well. Yeah. His exact words were, um, I never did anything in a place I was not intimately familiar with. Not, not, not necessarily true, because I, I, I think, again, the Jackie Harp murder is completely unplanned, completely done in a, in a territory that he was not intimately he knew, he, familiar he where, with. He knew where the Stewarts was. <laughs> he knew where... The Stewarts root beer stand. Well, he didn't know where it was. He remembered being in a Stewarts when he saw her and right. followed her out. And that's where he was stalking them out. Yeah, he remembered. I mean, you know, that's how some of the, you know, the way sometimes we get information from him is not by asking him directly, but by talking about where, for example, the best root beer was. And inevitably, you'll remember, oh, yeah, on the way to that root beer place, I left a girl behind, you know, on the riverbank. Or the best corned beef in New York was where I killed that girl. But that's <laughs> what I mean by intimately familiar. So he, he's got regular yeah. hunger needs. So he's going to yeah. go get a drink or a bite to eat and then kill over there yeah that he didn't know he would be killing somebody there 
uh, just ends up being that way, but he makes sure it's on very familiar ground. Like, which was his downfall in the end? The, the you know the quality in in um, Hasbrook Heights was where he left a victim in the parking lot there. He frequented that place. He took his uh, mistresses there. He then, uh, 10 weeks before he was arrested, he, he left a body under a bed in one of the rooms of that um, a hotel he had. He was acquainted with somebody who worked in that um, hotel as well. It had that back door that he loved going in and out of the parking lot. Um, and, and, and so in his, I think he was really in a meltdown stage in 1980 when he's arrested because of the trauma he was going through with his wife divorcing him. And um, in fact, that morning he's in divorce court and gets postponed. And, and so he comes back to New York uh, after divorce co court in a foul mood, I imagine. And that's, he does his work shift. And then later that evening, he will uh, pick up a girl from New York, bring her to that Hasbrook Heights hotel and proceed to torture her Um as she's screaming, the staff who are spooked from finding a body there 10 days previously immediately call security. Um, and, and, and they bang on the door. He tries to make a run for it. He's arrested. Um, and what do you know? We arrest a guy who just scratched up and cut up and handcuffed a girl in the same hotel where we found a handcuffed girl underneath a bed 10 days. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes. Um, and by the way, two years earlier, we found a girl um, in the parking lot of the same hotel, Mary Ann Carr, um, who is in a completely different condition. In, in, in fact, the ME concludes that she was not raped. But here's um, the thing. He it's different. Let me interject. He said to us, so many girls survived him because yeah. his intent was never, well, we can't say for sure it wasn't ever to kill, but he wants to get as far as he can get with mutilating or terrorizing, and some of them could take it. Some of yeah. them stayed till the very last minute and survived, never went and told the cops. So yeah. for him to get into all these situations and some of the girls are ending up dead, a lot of them didn't die. No, no. He says, he, he says, I killed maybe one in a hundred. And, and looking at the rape cases that we conclusively confirmed our clotting hands for which um, he's never been charged. He's never identified, but but we've identified those cases. They're all cases with surviving victims, um, and 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 there were you know there were double abductions, right? He's killed twice. That's that's not that common. Where um, a serial killer will kill doubles? two victims. Yeah, I mean, doubles. Marianne, right? Lorraine, and Dita, and the unidentified. Yeah, so we got at least two, and and among the rape cases, there are a number. There, well, at least one, that's a double abduction rape where both girls survived. In fact, and one of the girls stabbed him, um, and 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 that's how we traced down that case. From you know, I looked into his. Um, work records and 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 there was that uh, i found the you know he just he described to us how one girl had stabbed him once it, kind of in a way saying you know sometimes 
I was almost the victim, <laughs> right? What do you mean, Rich? Well, you know, there's a girl who stabbed me in the leg. Right. Um, but he didn't give us details of where, when um, well, we that have a, was. We have it, the, people, and, the three girls in the well. So uh, we'll get to the three girls in the well in a second. But but this case, right, this case we were able to track down because I found in his work insurance papers, right, when he applied for um sick pay for a week and and the doctor's note with the laceration on his leg when i looked at the date i found the case and guess what it was a double abduction there were two girls yeah he never mentioned right there were two girls and and of course where that case was located in in the new york city area um we have a corridor of about 16 possible cases that are on a county line where women were disappearing from a kind of a, a, a corridor leading down to the county border and they're disappearing from one part of that corridor and they're appearing in the same creek in the next county um and and that was a very big thing with him taking them over county lines he he um did that deliberately carefully it worked especially in the era that he was doing his killing um you know i went through those press reports there's no sense of um that there was a serial killer at work here um a few journalists kind of, you know remember this is still in an era before that word serial killer is coined in the public media yeah yeah you know guys like resler were using that term uh but it was all inside the law enforcement community um the public and other serial killers were not aware of that term so um a few reporters in new jersey kind of suggested you know maybe we have a maniac a sex maniac out there uh but there was uh, you know as far as new jersey authority was if one girl was drowned but the other one was strangled they're two different cases right two different perpetrators and was very very simplistic and it it worked and judging by the cases as i say that we're aware of that we've confirmed as his, but I have not made public yet, uh, but have confirmed as his, his claim that there are maybe 80 to 100 victims out there is very plausible. It's it's plausible. And, and they're not all in New Jersey and New York. I mean, we're talking about trips all the way down to um, Florida along that route. We're talking about his uh, trips to Las Vegas. Um, he was a traveler. He, he traveled to gamble. Uh, um, so it's plausible and, and, and for, you know, for that hundred, there very well could be over a thousand survivors. Uh, he, he, he probably was on the prowl every day, Yeah, every day. And you said too, that, uh, when you had, when you speak to him, you ask him about personal stories where he's been going to an uncle's house. And you said that you kind of like listened very intently to where he said he went yeah. because you always look and see if there's a victim or someone in the vicinity. Absolutely. I think that's a smart way to, to go about that. Have you gotten any further with, with your 
the information you want or do you think he's going to hold off on that because he wants you to keep visiting jen is is still looking for her your mother's skull right yes yeah right so have you gotten any further with that or you well um the issue here is is um he's identified a location uh -huh. and I, you know i got to give credit to nypd within six weeks of um, Jennifer and I approaching them with this information, they launched a search. Um, I thought this was never going to happen. And I, you know, I was shocked that in six weeks, uh, they connected with Bergen County. Um, sorry, <laughs> I, uh, stupid me, I just slipped uh, too much information away. Okay. But it was, um, you know, joint jurisdictions showed up. Uh, and, and, and so the response, considering, you know, I hear from a lot of victim families and considering the kind of response they're getting, I, I've got to say NYPD came through. Um, and, and that's a difficult police department to, to deal with. They're a nation unto themselves. But on this case, they came through. Um, the problem, I think, was, was that the search could have been done better than it was. Um, and, and so one of the issues was that when they brought, they brought him out there to that location, um, Jen and I were not allowed to be there on the actual location. Uh, we were in the police station waiting for him to be brought back from, from that location. Uh, and, and so we sat down and we talked with Rich in, in the police station, um, probably the best interview we've had with him because it was not in a, in a prison. But the uh, problem with that first search was the police stood around an area they thought would be a good area for the killer uh, to have done what he did. They didn't say, Rich, grab your bearings, think about right. where you buried the remains. They never yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, not where they thought, where we thought. Uh, in a way, we Jen and I kind of identified. We Jen and I went there probably, I think, three times before the police went there. Um, and the last time we went there, we went there with with um, authorities from that piece of territory that are responsible for it um and 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 so they took us there they helped us do a a, a land survey we, we and that did... area is is owned by two different states yeah so um, it's it's an interstate area so uh but but uh, they even let us do a test dig like is it possible he says he did this in about 40 minutes with an entrenching tool so we brought out an entrenching tool and we dug in that territory just to see if that's nonsense or not whether the soil composition is diggable in that way and it turned out it could be but and, there was there was the decomposition in the soil because a special mushroom was there and the dogs had had reacted in such a way so we had yeah, the, to believe the area was a good area certainly the area there was very few areas that um, the way the terrain was where something where someone could have parked their car and then walked over to bury something so that helped that it narrowed down where the area was the problem was was when they brought rich out there rather than asking him where do you think you buried the heads they asked him is this where you buried the heads and 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 he responded he said maybe oh. You know, so the other thing, of course, I think they brought the wrong dogs. Um, if those heads are there, you know, for 40 years, 
you need the kind of dogs they're using to find MIAs in the Pacific. A, a, a dog that is not necessarily looking for the actual decomposition of the flesh, but it's looking at the soil um, chemistry now of 40-year-old, 100-year-old corpses. They're using these dogs to find MIAs in uh, Korea, Vietnam, the Pacific, right? And most of those dogs are, are out in California. Nobody in New Jersey, New York has those dogs. Um, so, you know, and, and, and as much as NYPD was willing to do this and go out there and, 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 and take a look, and nobody needs those heads for a conviction. He's already convicted on that. The only thing is, is that that second girl who's anonymous, she can still be identified, perhaps. There's still a chance. And We've identified victims much later, that's, that's uh, much earlier in, in, in the process. So it's possible. It's possible if we can find her skull to do a facial reconstruction now. Um, her DNA, they can always... DNA. You know, the, well, the DNA, I mean, her torso, they have her torso, um, so they could exhume and, and, and get the DNA from that. But I've facial reconstruction yeah. and, and, and her blood type was extremely rare. So that could possibly narrow it down a little bit, a little bit more. So it's, it's still a viable thing. And, right. and I think that's why NYPD did what they did. Um, like I said, they don't need those. They don't need to find those heads. They right. he's been convicted on it, right. um, but uh, you know I give him credit for that, and and hopefully everybody will still play nice with each other because this this is a problem. It's an interjurisdictional issue, and and all of us um, believe that those interjurisdictional rivalries were put aside a long time ago, um, and I think maybe in some places they have been, <laughs> but. Um, New Jersey and New York City across the river have a long history going back to prohibition. They're, this you know, it's the problem, Hatfields, though. McCoys. I think uh, people are uh, forgetting that we are all the people versus Cottingham. All the departments, Peter and myself, we're all the people versus Cottingham. Yeah. I think the departments forget that we can work together. I mean, come on. I've got a question that, uh, and this is a question that a lot of people ask me. And Jen, you mentioned, you know, some women could take the uh, the sadistic abuse and and torture. Um, have you been able to glean from him uh, a, a credible answer? Because people ask me all the time, why would whether it's um, you know in error or whether it's someone like um, Golden State or Ramirez who would let some some victims live have you gotten a sense from him how he decided who lived and who died was it victim characteristics was a lot it of the time it, it, it came down to i'm in the act of choking this woman and she's telling me with her mouth i'm gonna go to the cops tomorrow and he said you're gonna die now and that's a lot of the time how how some of them were left deceased because they threatened to go to authorities after he had pushed them to the very last level of like being able to endure the pain so that's that's key i mean this is an area that, of victimology where we say you know victim responses and statements to the offender often dictate the outcome if we believe him if, if we believe him because yeah. because in in one sense when he says I killed them because they would have reported me to police. It's almost, um, I guess, sometimes get a sense he's saying that 
to kind of diminish the monstrosity of his crimes. Like, I had to do it. It was either them or me. It's almost that way. Yeah, right? but, that, but indeed, it's, it's what he says. He says, if I got a sense that this girl was going to go to the authorities, um, then she had to die. Uh, I had to take her life. Nine times out of 10, a girl is going to say those things. Yeah, he told me that he had met some of his victims for a second time, that they made dates to meet again. Uh, and he described to me in one particular case where he had... Um, yeah, because they want money, Pete. Raped a, raped a, 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 a victim um, or... or Again, rape. Uh, he claims he never raped anybody. And his definition of rape is physically um, forcing a victim as opposed to intimidating the victim. Um, and, and, and so if he just intimidated the victim, scared her into complying with him, he doesn't consider that in his mind as 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 rape. But it's so rape. It's transactional it's rape. sex. It's not even transactional sex. It's plain rape it's intimidation it's, but it's but they intimidation some of them were saying i'll do anything you want for 200 bucks right. he met he says with um a victim that he arranged that he would meet her on a particular date he said that he arrived there an hour earlier he um surveyed the place so that he's not that it's not an ambush or or the police are waiting for him uh and and that he then met with her but she met him voluntarily a second time and um, he says now one of those new york arrests when he actually was arrested it was the same situation which is why i find that story of his a little bit credible um he went to an appointment with a victim from a previous day and nypd was waiting for him so this idea that he has in his head that some of his victims are meeting him again is not a total fantasy. I mean, he was arrested and charged, right, in New York uh, in the 1970s when he went out to meet a victim uh, from a previous night. So there is that modus operandi there. That, that occurs. Um, so uh, this this issue of um, I killed them because I thought they would report me. It, I think it's part of the game, the power game he's playing. It it um, as he says, um, you're not God when you take a life. You're God when you decide whether you're going to take a life or not. And so, in order to have those godlike powers he would need to let some of them live. Otherwise, he doesn't have the God power if he's killing them all. Uh, he's just a force of nature. Um, it's the ability to let so many girls live and choose the ones that die is where he's getting his power surge. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, just speaking about the manipulation, it's just you it's hard to believe what he says and if he wants you to keep coming and he's just feeding you information. So it, that it's very hard in itself to weed that out. Oh, he, yeah. right? on, on top of his geriatric memory, the guy's 75 right. <laughs> years old, his brain is pickled in years of alcohol. Right. Um, there's a lot of brain misfunctions as well. He doesn't dream. 
for example, we had a crisis with him recently where some kind of medication he was on, um, he started dreaming. Um, or at least remembering his dreams. Right. And, and so we were getting these crisis phone calls from him that they're doing mind control on him, that when he goes to sleep, he sees crazy things. And I think what he was having is everyday dreams that he had never experienced um, in his life. Right. Um, so, so I think there are definitely some kind of physiological, um, cerebral things at work here um, that... that we're only getting a sense of right? the kind of work that Keel, for example, is doing in uh, scanning the brains of um, incarcerated psychopaths, not just killers, but all psychopaths. There are physiological anomalies. He can look, you know, Keel can look at a, a, a brain scan and say, this guy will test positive on the hair psychopathy test, right? And he doesn't know anything about him. All he has is a scan of his brain. And he can he can anticipate what the hair test result will be. Um, so I think that's what is going on here. And and because I, it might be physiological as opposed to fantasy driven. Um, he is kind of an anomaly. Yeah. He's like the last serial killer on the left. Um, he, he is an anomaly. He is from that old generation of serial killers who um, had no peers, so to speak, to learn from. I've asked him, uh, you know, how aware of you were you of the Boston Strangler or Son of Sam? And, and he just, you know, nothing to do with me. He wasn't interested. He claims he never followed in the papers what he did unless he accidentally read about it while at work. But he didn't take clippings. He um, he says once it was done, I didn't think about it. Um, so there is this did, impulsivity. He, he did say that he wanted to be the best serial killer. <laughs> he wanted to be known as the top number one. Serial he didn't killer. say he wanted to. Be yeah, that would have been as. great. That would have right. been great if there right. were serial <laughs> killer to be known as, right? right? right, right Except right. they weren't, right? So that comes after. He tells that. I think he. He said that to Nadia to give her something. Yeah. You know, we try to coach him, Rich, don't help us. Right. You know, I, don't I, give I, us more than what you think we need. Right. Just tell us. I, uh, you know. meant, I think he meant he just wanted to be successful at getting away with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to be and successful at crime. something. Yeah. That's something, right? Um, he described to me how when he put his mind to it, he spent a year in high school where he got nothing but A's. And, and then once he did it, he didn't care anymore. And he went back to his C's, right? Um, he had a year where he ran track and, and, and broke some um, high school records in New Jersey. He was a good track runner. Um, so he had those moments where he wanted some kind of recognition, certainly he had these kinds of ambitions, but he could never see through on any of them. And, and right. he's got a story why he didn't go to college. He certainly was smart <laughs> enough to go to college, could have, uh, but he didn't. He ended up, his father fixed him up with a job there. His father was a VP. Right. And, and there's no, he admits to nothing in his childhood that you find in... Um, typical serial killers biographies he he raised uh pigeons and he told us how um whenever his pigeon broke a wing he would have to ask his father to put the pigeon down because he 
<laughs> he made this kind of face, you know, I couldn't wring the pigeon's neck. I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't believe it either. You believe it. I don't. I yeah. believe it. I believe I believe that he would have no problem cutting off um, a, a woman's head, but he would absolutely be turned off by killing a pigeon or any animal. He, he, it's <laughs> no, not maybe, about maybe power. Peter could a... be Peter. You could be onto that because I remember just well. I mean, just looking at the at the murders, so how he would treat prostitutes versus how he would treat girls he would pick up on the side of the road. You know, there was a, a very different way he would he would mutilate the body and he would do more to something that he felt was. Uh, the only problem he, there is the chronology when he's doing that. The, the you know, it's ten years. Yeah. He's, I we know we confirmed that um, he's been killing at least since 1967. Yeah. So, uh, but, but, um, Jennifer and I believe his first murder was in 1963 when JFK was still alive when he was 16 years old. Um, and, and, and so if we're talking about an 18 year period or let's just say, let's say 1967, we're talking about a 14 year period. Um, you know, just look at us as normal people, the kind of changes and how our tastes change. So um, unless we could find some similar schoolgirls that were murdered around the same time he was doing those mutilations in New York, um, it's, hard, it's hard to say, because it's a right. difference between a 20-year-old serial killer and a 30-year-old serial right. killer. I would and love, I, I, I don't even want to end this conversation, but I know we all have, you know, other agendas. I, I would love for you guys to come back on again, if you wouldn't mind, and, and we could talk more especially about what you uncover from this point on yeah hopefully um we're, we're kind of a little bit hesitant uh but um yeah i i think the, the, the part of the hesitancy for us and jennifer is that these are active cases right now and, and right. we're already talking too much um but in a way both jen and i decided to do this interview with you and um we're going to do one with lee meller who i, I know mike you're you're familiar we're going to do yep. uh, lee meller's podcast on i don't know I, I unfortunately i was called away so i'm not sure what jen told you about what's going on now but um you know there were promises for those two confessions in new jersey um kelly and Pryor. promises were made uh by by the former chief there and and he made the promises and then he retired uh and now we got a sense that it's very odd that nypd has to sometimes go through us rather than picking up the phone and calling them we've been like these crazy mediators tell them um, the promises what are the promises well the promises are is is cottingham is ready to confess to approximately eight homicides in new york um and and um, he doesn't want to do them in prison. He wants to do them where he made the other confession in exchange for Rich um, confessing to Kelly and Pryor, not only confessing, but pleading, because his other confessions were immunity letters, but making a plea, taking a, uh, another sentencing on Kelly and Pryor was that Bergen County would host New York there because certainly Cottingham doesn't want to cross state lines. Um, they would host New York there. Um, and this was supposed to happen already last summer. And, and Bergen County is not coming through on the former chief's um, 
promises. And, and so um, New York is waiting, we're waiting, and, and moreover, um, they, they need to come through on the promise uh, on their own cases. But the new sheriff in town, new people. Um, Robert Anzalotti, as, uh, you know, he was hands-on on this case as a young detective. And, and over those years, he became chief there. And, and of course, he had the power that a chief has, and yet he took a personal interest in his cases. He was hands-on. Now, you know, we had one chief doing this job. Uh, now you got three guys, and all reporting to each other um, doing this, and, and, and they're not doing it. So yeah. we're, 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 that's why we went public with this. Um, and, you know, while we're talking with you, we're, like I said, we're hoping that Bergen County comes through to New York for, for their brothers, because I always thought, uh, you know, Mike, you're going to, I'm sure, dissuade me from this as a former, <laughs> you know, cop, but um, I'm not a cop. Um, I don't come from that world or from law enforcement. So I, I had these illusions that it was a brotherhood um, and that there was a higher mission uh, solving crimes and closing cases and bringing some sense of um, certainly not closure because you never get closure, but some sense of resolution for families um, above jurisdictional issues or jealousies and things. And Political. We don't, we, you know, we don't, we're not seeing that. And so, you know, I'm becoming disillusioned and I hope this is not going to be the sad ending to the book that I'm writing about this. I, I want a happy ending that these cases were closed and families have found peace. Jennifer has been fighting for that. Um, Jennifer has put all her traumas on the line for this. Um, so it's it's a I guess it's kind of a, a healing process for her, but you know to find some kind of meeting in a family member's death is is you know you don't get closure, but if you can have resolution and meaning, it gives you a sense of uh, peace. And and unfortunately, I think for Jennifer, she's now tied her own sense of peace to identifying other victims and closing you know, helping to close those cases. And um, it's a burden she carries. Um, I'm a little bit less emotional about it. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a historian. So that's all I do is just look at atrocities, whether they're um, civil atrocities or military atrocities. So um, I'm, I'm cold on that issue. But Jennifer's got her heart in it and her soul. She really does. Every time I talk to you, Jen, I, that's something that I, that I point out in you and my students want to learn from you because they want to hear what you have to say. And I told them like, oh, I promise I'm going to get her in there one day. I promise. Um, but we have to wrap it up for today. I, I again, like, I just really don't want to end the conversation. Well, thanks for <laughs> but, having me. Oh yeah. We're so happy to have you on. Thank you, Peter. A wealth of information. Uh, Michael, always a pleasure to do this podcast with you. <laughs> nice meeting you guys and all nice the best. And hopefully we'll be back with a happier ending to this story. Hopefully we will be. See you guys next time on Suspect Zero. Next time on Suspect Zero, the case of the angels of death. 